according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Bible. Join me, if you would, in Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. On Sunday, we got our first start at the last paragraph, and so I want to get right back to that, although we do like to take some question and answer time on Wednesday nights. But uh, verse 18, there's two statements of rejoicing, a present tense, in this I rejoice, and then a future tense, when Paul repeats it and says, yes, indeed, I will rejoice. And so right in between the the present tense rejoicing and the future tense rejoicing, we have the break in in paragraph, we have um, to transition now to the final portion of chapter 1, which is to live as Christ and to die as gain. Uh, the great application of what Paul has learned during his time in jail. Remember, this is a prison epistle. He's writing this from uh, his confinement. And uh, he realizes that whether he lives or whether he dies is kind of beside the point. He wants to stay faithful. And so uh, as he stays faithful, uh, he knows that uh, his Savior is glorified. So we want to learn that same lesson ourselves as we make this application. All right. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our time of study to hedge us about with His protection and to, uh, to uh, set aside our distractions. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You tonight thankful for Your truth, rejoicing for this, this feast, Father, that You prepared for us. We thank You for the freedom of our land whereby we can meet in a public building with a sign out front in a website. We're not in fear of uh, the government coming in and shutting us down. Father, we just thank you that uh, we have this freedom, the freedom uh, to exercise positive volition or negative volition, the freedom to uh, to come and be blessed and to feed upon your truth or to uh, stay home and do other things. Father, um, it's a land of freedom and we want to thank you for that. We do pray that you would shape our thinking, that you would guide and direct our steps, that we would make more and more positive decisions each and every passing day. So Father, take use of uh, this teaching and uh, make use of it as you see fit. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to get that up and running still. We have a microphone ready to go. And so uh, did I promise somebody the first question? I did not promise anybody the first question tonight. So um, we'll go with the highest bidder then if we want to. uh... All right, Kathy gets our first question tonight. Okay, I've been doing some reading and I can't figure out the answer, but I'm sure you know exactly to the millisecond. We live in different ages and dis- different dispensation. Mm-hmm. Um, the <clears throat> age of Israel was interrupted when Christ died on the cross and we entered the church, entered the church age. Not exactly, but okay. You're you're with me then. Uh Because exactly when did the um, dispensation of Israel end, or age of Israel end, or was... um, On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended, the (coughs) disciples were in the upper room, and when the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost, that was the inauguration of the church age. Okay. And so uh, the Holy Spirit was poured forth and the believers there in the upper room received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in the union with Christ and that was the, the beginning of the church age. So that's when Israel and their stewardship was suspended. But you'll notice Israel's not done. Israel has a no. future. So at the rapture of the church then, <clears throat> when the Spirit indwelled believers all depart, there'll be no more, no more saved people on this planet. Right. And so the Holy Spirit departs as a permanent indwelling influence that's called the restrainer in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So the church we say from Pentecost to rapture, on the day of Pentecost, 30, 33 AD, um, I think it was May 24th of 33 AD, all right, until rapture, which is hopefully today, uh, but uh, in between Pentecost and rapture is, is the church age. Okay, but is there a pause during the time Christ was nailed to the cross until he was resurrected and then to Pentecost is that's all Old Testament or Correct. Yeah, no, that's all 
dispensation of Israel. Yeah, the age of promise, age of law, age of the incarnation, three different ages within the dispensation of Israel, correct. Okay. But it, he was born under the law, born of a virgin, born under the law, it says in, in Galatians. And so that's another good dispensational clue. Uh, G, even though, and this is what gets difficult because we have, we have some blank white pages in between Malachi and Matthew. And we have this big title page here that says New Testament, right? And it includes yep. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. And they were written in Greek after 400 years of silence. Uh, they're not a part of the Hebrew canon. However, they do precede the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter 1, and all of that belongs in the Old Testament, dispensationally speaking. It's a part of Israel's stewardship. And, all of, and most of Christ's teaching at that time until the upper room discourse. Yes, okay. much of what Jesus taught, especially the Olivet Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Most of, the, of Jesus' major messages were all for Israel. Not until the Upper Room Discourse in John 13 do you have a section of, of John that applies to the church. Correct. Okay. Okay. Well, that answered that right. very nicely. All right. Excellent questions. Appreciate that. We'll come up here for Chuck, and then we'll go across. We'll be bipartisan when we cross the aisle. So I have a kind of a follow-on question. Uh-huh. Is there anything, any verse or verses that specifically connect the rapture to the beginning of the tribulation? None. Okay. None whatsoever. No. Uh, Daniel's 70th week, uh, remember Daniel had a prophecy of 70 sevens. 69 of them were finished on Palm Monday when Jesus entered Jerusalem humble riding on a colt. Then four days later, he went to the cross, and that's after week 69. And we have yet to start week 70. Week 70 doesn't start until Israel signs their covenant with Antichrist. And so that may be, that doesn't have to, by the way, if the rapture is tonight, that doesn't mean they're signing that covenant tomorrow morning. So there could be a, a, a gap in between. But even with that gap in between, even though the 70th week hasn't started yet, their stewardship has resumed. The stewardship resumes a split second after we're gone, but the 70th seven doesn't start until they sign that, that covenant with Antichrist. Okay? That makes sense? All right. Carol gets her next question then. Oh, I'm sorry, not Carol. Somebody unspoken that doesn't like her name on the website. That would be Carol. Yeah. <laughs> that chart says Christ's death, by the way. I'm sorry? Oh. Um, Death of Christ. Has the death of Christ, resurrection of Christ, day of Pentecost, and they're all uh, connected together, three sequential events with one arrow that goes up, and it's a limitation of the format on the chart. That's cool. You know, this is a chart that spans 6,000 years, and you're talking 40 days of resurrection ministry, so. It's the pixel thickness of that line. (laughs) Okay, so on Philippians one, eighteen. Philippians one eighteen about Paul's present rejoicing and future rejoicing. In your notes, you said that Paul anticipates the soteria, soteria, um, but it wouldn't. Isn't that is that strong enough? Or anticipates? Um, he it? says, "I know that this will turn out for my deliverance." So that's something that Ioida knows. He fully knows it. Not just gnosko knowing or epinosis knowing, but Ioida. Yeah. For I know that this will turn out for my soteria, my salvation, my deliverance. I guess this anticipates, I guess we've kind of watered that down to the point where anticipates is oh. weak. And so I thought anticipates was too weak for that. That's why. Well, maybe I'm it just, is. But that's probably just because of our contemporary use. Yeah. In your use, maybe. My use, I use anticipate all the time for yeah, something that I'm confident about. I no. anticipate. I don't know. I just, it might be. Yeah, it might okay. be. Okay. So Daniel twelve thirteen. Daniel what? Twelve thirteen. Uh-huh. Uh, it talks about end of the age. Yep. Is that, which, which is that new heavens, new earth, or millennium? When, what, what end of which age? Yeah, at the end of the age, uh, related to Israel and their stewardship, remembering, of course, okay. so, that they don't know about the church. 
Right. And so the idea of the end of the age means the stewardship of Israel, up in, into, including the 70th seven, the tribulation, right. the millennium. So if we're going to put it in our dispensational okay. language, we would say, uh, go your way, Daniel. Uh, you will enter into rest. In other words, you're going to die. And you're going to rise again for your allotted portion in the millennial kingdom Amen. of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that is millennial. Yes, at the end of the age. As opposed to... Because uh, the church is unknown in the Old Testament. It's, it's a mystery and it's not revealed to the prophets uh, of the Old Testament. Okay. I get the millennial and the thousand generations. It's like which, which you know, that, that's, what, that's the, why I wrestle with some of these things. Right, yeah. The millennium uh, is after the tribulation, but it's still on this earth before the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Right. And then after the millennium, heavens and earth are destroyed, right. new heavens, new earth, that's the fullness of time. And that's why I thought that it would be the Israel's time then, as opposed to the end of the age. I thought that would be then. No, the end of the age is the end of the Jewish age, and it's the last okay. age of the Israel stewardship. Because okay. of the new heavens and new earth, that's the next age. That's the age to come. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. And so you have a difference between the end of the age and the age to come. Make sense? Well, yes. So on Hebrews 2.8, it talks about en enemies subject under his feet. Hebrews 2.8? Yes. That shouldn't be till new heavens and new earth because in the millennium, that's when they, the enemies rise up. And they will be put in subjection, but they will uh, feign obedience and they will rebel. They will finally have a Gog-Magog rebellion at the end of it. Okay? Right. But the subjection is... And, and this verse here says, we don't even see it yet. Uh, verse 8, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. Right. Ultimately, that's going to require the new heavens and new earth when there's no okay, more sin, good. no more death, no more Satan. So, yes, I'm, that's, okay. that's yeah, yeah, no, no, they, these are great questions because all too often, um, you see, uh, Schofield, if you have a Schofield study Bible or you ever learn dispensations under Schofield, Schofield did not separate the fullness of time. He, end, he basically equated it with the millennium. So you have a millennium, then you have the great white throne, and then it's eternity future after that. And Schofield did not teach a separate stewardship on the new earth after the millennium. So a post-millennial stewardship, Schofield didn't teach that. And so because he didn't teach it, Schaefer didn't teach it, Ryrie didn't teach it, most dispensationalists today don't teach the fullness of time on the new earth after the millennium. Okay, Which is why my prayer, my hope, is to teach it at Schaefer Conference next March. And uh, the paper that I've submitted will, will hopefully score me a, a teaching spot there. So pray about that. Keep that in prayer. All right. Let's uh, go back to Bill. And then if we have time, we can come back to the far right. For, but for now, we have a question coming from the far left. Shortly after I got here, I had made a reference to Matthew 24, 40 uh -huh. as being a rapture passage. And as you walked away, you kind of... Not a rapture passage. Nope, not a rapture passage. Could you explain that? Yeah, yeah. Um, although it's largely debated, and uh, for 40 years now, every pre-trib dispensationalist has rightly said that's not a rapture passage, but over the last 10 years, there have been more kind of a refinement of the understanding, and more authors are starting to maybe accept that, okay, maybe it might be a rapture passage. Uh, but I still fall on the side that it's not. In fact, we've had the last three Friday sessions with Robbie Dean where a bunch of us pastors are on a conference call with go to, go to uh, meeting and uh, we get on the video together and we've been going through this very passage actually. So um, this is, I call this an anti-rapture uh, because in the rapture um, it's the believers that are snatched up and out and we go to heaven and the unbelievers are left here to face antichrist and, and tribulation and that. This is the regathering at the end of the tribulation where it is not the saved that are gathered, it is the uh, unbelievers that are gathered, right? The, 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 you have wheat and chaff, and the chaff have to be gathered together so they can be thrown into the, into the fire, while the wheat is gathered together to be brought into the barn. And so when Jesus taught that wheat and tares parable in Matthew 13, he uses this language of gathering when he says that the, the tares at the end of the age, the tares are going to be gathered together so they can be thrown in the fire. And so don't think of this as a rapture. There'll be two men in the field. One will be taken, that's the unbeliever who's going to be taken and thrown into, the, into hell. And one will be left, that's the believer that will enter into the, into the millennial kingdom. So it's kind of an anti-rapture. Two women will be grinding at the mill. 
One will be taken, the unbeliever thrown into hell, and one will be left, the believer that will enter into the millennial kingdom. So it's not, uh, it's not a rapture. They're not caught up, but they are taken. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's basically um, after the seven years uh, mm -hmm. tribulation, the ones that are removed are the ones who did not, you know, get saved. Right, right. Within because seven no, years. no unbeliever will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Not, not to start with. Now they will have unbelievers born over the thousand years, but no unbeliever that survives the tribulation will enter into the kingdom of God. Right. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. All right, one more on the far right then, Chris, if you don't mind racing over there again. You're healthy, you're young. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> um, Matthew 25, verse 1 through 13, talking about the ten virgins. Is this a rat? Since it's Old Testament teaching, what is, do these women refer to the ones with and without oil? Yeah, uh, the, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, if you don't have oil for your lamp, how does it stay lit? Uh, the, the idea is preparedness, the idea is readiness, and, uh, and five were and five were not. And so as far as the Jewish people and the expectation of their Messiah, and the expectation that the Messiah is coming... Um, it's the wise ones that are willing to, you know, burn the midnight oil, uh, willing to wait no matter how long it takes. And the others, you know, they'll wait up to a point, but they're not going to go overboard or stock up on extra oil or, or prepare or anything like that. So yeah, they are caught without oil when when the Lord returns. So that's that's the impact on that. The the second advent is a is a doctrine that has an imminency application just by virtue of the fact that he's coming as a thief, that the days are cut short, that they can count 1,260 days. I mean, anybody can count 1,260 days, but because he's cutting those days short, they don't know uh, exactly how short or what day he's coming back or exactly when it's going to be. So that's how we have a calendar that has a seven-year tribulation with two three-and-a-half-year uh, halves, um, but because he cuts that short, we don't know the day or the hour. And so he comes as a thief. And that creates an imminency application for the Jews as they anticipate the, the coming of their Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And that okay. Im imminency of the coming of Christ is before his return on uh, to Jerusalem. Before his second advent, where he lands on the Mount of Olives and the mountain splits north and south and he goes forth to conquer at the Battle of Armageddon. But this has nothing to do with the church age. No, church is nowhere in the upper room discourse. Or in the, in the I'm sorry, in the sermon on the uh, Mount Olivet discourse, which is what we have here in Matthew 24 and 25. Okay. Yeah. All this is Israel. Yeah. It starts off with a question the disciples ask in the beginning of chapter 24. Uh, they're, they're taking a tour of the temple complex and the disciples are all impressed with the buildings that, that Herod built for them, by the way, this Edomite pagan. Uh, he built them this temple, and they're all happy about how grand it is and large and spectacular. And he says, do you, see, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So they're impressed, and he says, no, it's getting torn down. <laughs> and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. Okay? In other words, the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom. And there's nothing in there that has any, anything at all to do with the church. It's all about Israel and what they can expect. Yeah. All right. Well, appreciate those questions tonight. If I didn't get to yours, then uh, we'll try to put you up front next week. Um, or shoot me an email in between. A lot of times the emails do get front-loaded, so we can uh, appreciate that. We have... Um, Shift gears a little bit here and get back to our Philippians outline. Philippians 1. Remember, uh, we have a salutation in the first two verses. Paul and Apostle, not an Apostle, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And that's a marvelous definition of a local church right there. You have saints in a location with overseers and deacons. And then uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then 
We break the rest of the chapter down into three parts. Uh, Each one has a significant memory verse, by the way. So in verses 3 through 11, what's typically called the thanksgiving and prayer section, very common in Paul's epistles that he, after the salutation, he opens up with a thanksgiving and prayer section. And uh, he has one here in Philippians, and it centers on, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And the real emphasis there on not how you get started in your Christian walk, but the perfection, what Jesus is taking you to, to complete it. So that you also, you and I can have a tetelestai statement. We can say it is finished, we've done our work, and, and, and uh, we're prepared to, to go home. Uh, the second section in verses 12 through 18 is the occasion for writing section. Again, very common in Paul's epistles, very common in any epistles really. Uh, the author of a text will explain to his audience you know, why he's writing <laughs> and uh, you know, what the occasion is and what he hopes to say. And so in the occasion for writing section in verses 12 through 18 it centers on my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And I love that in verse 12. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So don't get bummed out or discouraged or think that your circumstances have ruined everything. Your circumstances are where God has placed you and uh, the victory is there as long as you stay in God's will, as long as you stay obedient to, uh, to His plan. And then finally the chapter concludes with application and this is the application. He makes it for himself first and foremost and then he invites the Philippians as well. They can adopt the same philosophy um, that to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so, I mean, ultimately when you finally give it over to the Lord and say, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of praying about my circumstances. Whatever they are is what they are. And what they're going to turn into is what they're going to turn into. God's in charge of all of that. When you really accept that we're running with endurance the race that's set before us, then we quit complaining about the twists and turns in the race. We quit complaining and we stop complaining about the obstacles or the, I mean, the race is the, is the race. Don't complain about what it is, just run it with endurance. And when you do, then you realize that even matters of life and death are secondary. The, the, the more important question is, am I going to stay faithful or am I going to fall into shame? Am I going to shame the name of Christ? Am I going to shame myself by shaming the name of Christ? Or am I going to stay faithful by the grace of God? And if I stay faithful by the grace of God, then who cares if I live or die? That's all secondary in, uh, in these things. So that's how the chapter concludes, and that's verses 19 through 30. And that's where we are tonight. Really it's 18b through 30 because that yes I will rejoice is uh, prior to verse 19, but that's all right. So to live as Christ and to die as gain. And as we started this on Sunday, we gave you the first point already that his present rejoicing assures him of a future rejoicing. Present rejoicing assures him of a future rejoicing. And, and that's a good danger sign. It's a good red flag. You know, you ever have a little uh, benchmarks, little things where you kind of stop and you look around and say, this isn't going well, <laughs> right? Um, if you're looking around at what you're faced with and you're testing right now and you're not seeing the rejoicing, that's, that's, that's danger. Saying, well, wait a minute. I better learn how to be thankful, rejoice always and everything, give thanks. Uh, I better learn how to rejoice in the Lord, okay? Because if I'm not rejoicing now, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do the next day? What am I going to do between now and my physical death. Because as much as I may dislike the testing I'm under now, this is, this is it's getting worse, okay? The ones coming up are bigger than these. The tests down the road, those are the biggies. This one is, is a little one on the way to the biggie. This is a test that God designed to equip us so we can handle the bigger tests after these tests, right? Does that make sense? You understand how that works? So the, uh, the process then the guarantee, the, the, the excitement about rejoicing now, that's a, that's a thrill because you say, all right, Lord, uh, show me what the next test is because I'm going to rejoice in that one too. <laughs> okay? And Paul knows that. He says, yes, I will rejoice. It's a, it's a conscious choice. You choose to rejoice because he tells you to rejoice, right? One of my pastor friends, I think it's uh, maybe Larry Hoffman. I think so. He, he likes to say, um, have a good day if you choose to. And you know, it, it just makes a lot of sense to me. You know, have a good day if you choose to, right? Because the day is whatever the day is, but it's your attitude as far as whether or not you're going to be rejoicing in the Lord and occupied with Christ. 
and the Father might give you a marvelous day and you choose to have a crummy day. <laughs> okay? Or He may give you a crummy day, but you choose to have a wonderful day. That's how that works. All right. He anticipates a salvation. If you don't like the word anticipate, then strengthen it to something you do like. Um, <clears throat> Paul is certain of a salvation. He knows that this will turn out for his soteria, his salvation. And it's a salvation, by the way, that's not contingent with his life or his death. Verse 20, notice what it says. It says, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He almost just blows it off, right? But he knows that there's a salvation on the way. So uh, we took some time, and I hope we're clear on this. Nobody asked a question on this tonight. But we know that the Bible uses save in different ways, and it uses salvation in different ways. Paul here is not you know, hoping to get saved in, in receiving eternal life and being you know, born again and having his sins forgiven and all that. No, this is a save where he's <clears throat> going to be saved from the shame. He's going to be saved from losing heart. He's going to be, as it says there in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. That's what he's getting saved from. He's going to be saved from being put to shame. Okay? His, uh, his opponents were hoping to cause him distress. And he wasn't really worried about that. What he was worried about was being put to shame. Was that he himself would stop walking by faith. And, uh, and yet he knows with the Philippian church praying for him, through those prayers and through the Holy Spirit you can't lose, right? Yeah. So we have this here. And so if you want to do a word study on soteria, I recommend it, number 4991. It does have 45 uses in the New Testament. You can combine it with sozo, S-O-Z-O, which is the verb. Okay, And when you look at sozo and soteria, you're going to find the same thing, that it can refer to receiving eternal life and having your sins forgiven and being born again. That's a very common thing. But that's not the only definition. That's not the only way that it's used. It's also used of being delivered from sin from sin temptations, from sin troubles, from, from what Paul's describing here where he just falls away from the faith. It can be used thirdly for dying, for being promoted to heaven. That's called a salvation, the salvation of your body. When finally then, where we're out of this body of sin, who will set me free from the body of this death? And I'm looking forward to that, I tell you. And then finally the fourth is being saved from physical danger, just rescued from a a military attack or a shipwreck or some kind of a bad thing that's happening. Um, those are the ways that, and, and we could add to that list too, in the Old Testament especially, and the New Testament, there's a salvation for Israel. All Israel will be saved, a national salvation. And that's different from a personal salvation when a sinner you know, trusts in Christ and receives eternal life. A national salvation is when the Messiah returns and conquers the enemies, delivers the remnant into the, into the millennial kingdom. That's called a salvation. Okay? All right. <clears throat> so, Paul knows that the Philippians' corporate prayer, their corporate prayer support, will sustain him. And you'll notice, that's verse 19, and it's through your prayers. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. And that's, that's a mechanism, right? That's a vehicle. Through your prayers. It's like grace you have been saved through faith, right? So understand that as a vehicle. If you don't, if, if this doesn't happen, can he count on those results? Because the salvation is going to be through their prayers, okay? And he knows that, through their prayers. And, and that there's, there are many passages that, that address this, and I'm not going to really, maybe not tonight, maybe in the future, we'll just chew on this idea, okay? Because some believers get the idea that we don't have to pray, and it doesn't matter if we do, and it doesn't matter if we don't. God has a plan. He's going to do His plan no matter what, okay? And I would just say, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm going to stop and say, can we, can we paint with a finer brush there, and can we see that God in His planning has a directive will and a permissive will and an overruling will. And yes, 
God is not going to fail in His plan because we fail to pray. I, I will grant you all of that. However, there are plain passages of Scripture, and this is one of them, that declare through such prayers consequences are applied. Through the Philippians' prayers, the consequences of Paul's soteria, his salvation, is going to become a reality. Until, until those prayers are given and until those prayers are answered, Paul's salvation is simply a potentiality, not a reality. Not till it happens, not till it's realized. And he's making this as a, uh, as a thing. And so I think um, we don't want to deny the language and we don't want to try to weasel around what the plain language says. Okay, Because then you get, where, did, where does that stop? I mean, if it's grace you've been saved, by grace you have been saved through faith, and you want to start playing funny games with what through means and, and say, well, you know, I don't have to really believe. God can save me anyway if I don't believe. Says who? Are you kidding me? He who does not believe, the wrath of God already abides on him. So when it says through, let's understand that. Okay, Through is a vehicle, it's a tool, it's a means by which something takes place. Also, <laughs> uh, there's some very bad theologies that kind of um, switch it around and they require you to receive eternal life first before you can believe. But you have to be regenerate. You're talking about the Calvinist theology we were talking the other day. That until you are regenerate, you're not able to believe. And so they've turned it around and they give you the regenerate life up front, God does, so that He can then give you the faith up front so that then you can believe. And what they do when they do that, they destroy the through language that talks about the through that we receive the, the new birth, that we receive, that we're born again. So um, you can't, the thing that's through that gets you there, you can't get there first before the through gets you there, if that makes sense. Like the vehicle that brought you to church tonight, okay, if you, if, if, if you came through car or through motorcycle or through bus or through helicopter or whatever, whatever vehicle brought you to church tonight, that's the vehicle that brought you here. And to try to get here before the vehicle gets you here just doesn't work. <laughs> okay? So if it's by grace you've been saved through faith, then that's it. Okay? Likewise, uh, through your prayers. That's how this salvation is going to come. And God knows this. Obviously in God's planning, He designs what He plans and He knows what our prayer contribution is going to be. What our uh, or our faithlessness is going to be. Either way, he knows, and uh, and he provides. All right. So through your prayers and or even the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Okay. And so there's an and, and sometimes the ands can be even. Sometimes the ands are describing two things. You should think of a separate item side by side, or sometimes we should think of the and as. Uh, an intensification or an amplification like pastors and teachers where we're really talking about one thing that's really described in two ways. Okay, And that's kind of a simple way to describe what's otherwise more complicated grammar. But uh, So it's legitimate to view verse 20 here and ask ourselves well, what kind of and is this? Uh, your prayers and the Spirit uh, or the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You see that there in verse 19? So my deliverance through, and there's only one through, but there's two uh, genitive objects here, uh, your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And I, I prefer to take this as an even, your prayers even the Spirit of Jesus Christ, showing that when they are praying, they're praying in the Holy Spirit, there's a unity there. Okay. By the, by the way, do you know the difference between question and answer night, so I'm going to throw one in your direction. How about that? The Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ? You ever think about that? <laughs> okay, easy answer is the same Holy Spirit. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But when you have the Spirit of truth or the Spirit of holiness or the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of unity, whatever you have, it's still God the Holy Spirit but the of label is is highlighting the um, the, uh, the the emphasis there. So the Spirit of Christ Jesus. What that highlights is the work that God the Holy Spirit does when He 
unites us together, all fixing our eyes on Jesus, all in fellowship with Jesus Christ, all in unity with Jesus Christ, with one another. That great spirit of Jesus is a spirit of unity, saying, because we're not wrapped up in ourselves, each one of us is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so I like what he does here with this when he talks about uh, through your prayers, even the provision, the supply, that which every joint supplies, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this is what happens when God the Holy Spirit provides that that, uh, affinity, that unity, that love, that like-mindedness, that uh, blessed be the tie that binds. Okay? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when we have that, when a healthy congregation has that, then uh, we're, we're in prayer for one another, we're loving one another, the Holy Spirit is promoting this, this fellowship that we have with one another and with His Son. And I hope that makes sense. And so that's what we have here in point B. Paul knows that the Philippians' corporate prayer support will sustain him. This prayer support becomes the logistical supply through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this what goes well with Ephesians 4.16 and Colossians 2.19. Uh, I won't spend a ton of time there because we did see them already on Sunday. Ephesians 4.16 From which the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Say, I wonder if my dad's arthritis doctor knows about this verse. <laughs> you know, you got joints, you've got uh, where bones come together, right? You've got ligaments, and you've got... Um, you know, and sometimes they're well-oiled and sometimes they're not so well-oiled. Like my dad, he creaks everywhere he walks. Um, but here we have what every joint supplies. And it, uh, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Colossians 2.19 Colossians 2.19 not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied, that's our verb, and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. You know, and it's all got to grow together. That's why we as a body, we're growing together. And yes, I'm growing and you're growing individually. Every believer is growing, but collectively the body itself is growing. Okay? Isn't that great? I grew up with a kid and he, uh, he went to seminary and he he, uh, oh, in his teenage years, I guess, about 12, went through a real big growth spurt, uh, except for his skeleton. His skeleton uh, lagged behind. And so he was adding height, and he was adding muscle, and he was adding pounds, and he was growing um, in, in weight that his skeleton was not growing to bear that weight. Okay, And it finally caught up with him, and it was just a temporary thing, but it required some Dr. Karen required some interesting things, and I never heard of such a thing before, but uh, Matt knows who I'm talking about, and it, it's interesting um, how, how these things happen. <laughs> you know, Fallen bodies in a fallen world, and so yeah, you get things like that that happen from time to time. Alright. But that's not normal, and it's not what we're looking at here. So, Paul's expectation and hope, both an expectation and a hope, and they're described uh, that way. Let me get back now to Philippians. According to my earnest expectation and hope. And once again, we've got to ask ourselves, what kind of and is this? Are these two things side by side that are both doing something? Um, or is this is the first one expanded by the second one? Um, anyway, you, you, when you have these tandems, you get this interpretive decision you've got to come to each time. Um, but I know that uh, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. Okay? He does not want to discredit the ministry. Paul's expectation and hope for this salvation is to not be put to shame in anything. Anything. The verb for put to shame is aiskuno. A-I-S-C-H-U-N-O. Iskuno. There's only five uses in the New Testament. Not that, not that well attested of a verb. There's some cognate nouns and some adjectives. Um, shame can be a noun and uh, 
something that's shameful would then be you know an adjective describing something else but um, and so we have those kind of terms in the in the Bible but the verb itself to put to shame is only used five times and sometimes uh, too there's a difference between being acted upon when something puts you to shame or when you are actively shaming somebody else okay and uh, neither one's really good and <laughs> we don't we're not here to shame other people but and we really don't want to be ashamed, okay? Now, what do we have to be ashamed of? We're 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 we're, we're saved. We're we're in the royal family of God, okay? Um, but here it is in any event. So Luke sixteen three, Second Corinthians ten eight, our passage tonight, Philippians one twenty, First uh, Peter four sixteen, First John two twenty eight. That's a pretty broad assortment. I mean, only two Pauline, one by Luke, one by Peter, one by John. That's a pretty broad assortment. Of, uh, of usages there for the verb iskuno. But to not be put to shame. And, and I, I want us to embrace this. I want us to understand this. I think there's a legitimate application. And then there's the satanic um, what Satan likes to use as a, as a, uh, a bait to his trap. Right? So here's, here's what I'm talking about. It's like fear. Fear is good thing or bad thing? Both. That's right. The fear of the Lord, yes, we want to have the fear of the Lord. But if we have fear of man, fear of the world, or fear of whatever, well then Satan uses that. And we're, we've misdirected our... I the same thing with shame. Okay, I think the real shame is, is we don't want to bring shame or disrepute on the person of our Savior. I don't want to conduct my ministry in a way that shames Him. Alright? The problem is that gets twisted. And Satan uses that because we have human pride. And we don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be mocked or laughed at. Or we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to be, and, and that's a difference, okay, between being embarrassed and being put to shame or putting Jesus to shame. You understand? I think sometimes Christians will then compromise their faith out of a desire to not be embarrassed. Or not be viewed as, as a kook, or not be uh, ridiculed, or, or, or something. And that's a wrong application of shame. We should rather just wear that shame like a badge of honor and say, Thank you, Lord. We're a spectacle. So, let's see if, this, uh, if you see what I'm talking about here and these, these usages here. Maybe not the, the verb may not address a lot of that. A lot of what I'm illustrating tonight might really be built more upon the noun or the adjective, but. Anyway, we'll see. Luke 16, 3. These are all, regardless of uh, regardless of um, anything else, they'll be useful uh, verses for us to study tonight. Just familiar ourselves with five shameful passages. How about that? And uh, Luke 16 is a puzzle anyway. This causes pastors and theologians fit sometimes. They, they don't know what to do with this guy because he seems like a snake. And even though he's a snake, Jesus praises him at the end of the paragraph for having a, a shrewd business sense. And um, So he was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this, or a steward, right? This steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So if you find out, you know, you, you, you own a property and you've trusted it to a property manager, and then you learn that he's just making a mess of the whole thing. You're not getting the rent you're supposed to be getting. He's not maintaining it. It's just everything's just horrible. Well, what are you going to do with this guy? <laughs> you're going to bounce. You're going to fire him. He's gone. You got to have. If you're a steward, you got to be faithful. So he called him and said to him, "What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager." And that's a principle, and we better learn from this because you and I have a stewardship in the body of Christ. We're church age believers, and we're stewards in the plan of God. And so the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. My manager is taking the management away from me. And here's his dilemma. He says, on the one hand, I'm not strong enough to dig. And then on the other hand, I'm ashamed to beg. (laughs) Okay? So he's kind of created his own moral dilemma here, his false dichotomy maybe. He only sees two options and he he doesn't like either of them. And, And okay, I get that. If you're not strong enough to dig, well, okay. Um, What's that old Clint Eastwood line? A man's got to know his limitations. 
Um, okay, but then I'm ashamed to beg. Interesting. So then he goes on to say, well, I know what I'll do. So he finds a third way. Uh, so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so he's going to do his last days on the job. He's going to start fostering a, a good network of uh, connections here. He's going to uh, earn favor in the eyes of, of these other people. And so he starts uh, cutting them deals, and he starts slashing their debts, and he starts giving them a, a, a walk-away price that, that they jump at because it's much lower than, than uh, they would have had otherwise. And uh, so basically it's a big write-off. Each, each one of these is a big write-off. Okay? Now, as I read through this text, I start to get mad at this guy. Just from the viewpoint of the owner, right? The Lord, he's the one that's getting, getting ripped off with all these deals getting cut off. But at the end of the story, the Lord's kind of happy with this. See, that makes me wonder what else was going on. But anyway. Point is, though, uh, we have the verb there, I schooner, that speaks of shame. And if you're not strong enough to dig, uh, then the alternative might be something you're too ashamed to do. All right. So that's how the Lord used it in Luke 16. 2 Corinthians 10.8 is the other of the two Pauline usages. 2 Corinthians 10.8. Of course, the Apostle Paul being the author of Corinthians and Philippians. 2 Corinthians 10.8. Um... Verse 7 says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Stop doing that, right? <laughs> You're, you have spiritual eyes, use them. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, so that just as he is Christ, so also are we. So in other words, be oriented to who you are in the Lord and, and understand the Word of God and live that way. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Now this, I think, is the closest of all these usages. It, it's Because it's Pauline. It's, it's Paul himself talking about what he's going to be put to shame in. The Philippians aren't going to put him to shame. Ephesians aren't going to put him to shame. The Corinthians, though, might. <laughs> okay? That was, a, that was a rough congregation. However, by the time he gets through chapters 8 and 9, by the time he's reunited with Titus, by the time he knows that the Corinthians have, uh, have repented, now he's able to, to say this almost like with a sigh of relief. And, um, and that he's not going to be put to shame. That he is going to arrive and he's not going to tear them down. He's not going to destroy them. He's going to build them up. And that's his authority in the local church. Okay. Anyway. Mark that verse down, by the way, for an authority verse. We, we had a discussion on Facebook a while back because John MacArthur made the claim that no pastor has any authority in any local church. And, um, and I thought, well, that kind of flies in the face of Scripture that speaks about authority in the local church. Um, but he was fielding a question. He had a question and answer, not like we do. Um, and this college girl got up and she was all worried about how much authority does the pastor have. And does every believer in the church have to do everything the pastor tells them to do? Okay, And so I think her question kind of betrayed a kind of a little hint of some problems she was having, or I don't know what. But anyway, and so I was kind of waiting for him to give kind of a gentle answer and maybe show some verses and maybe kind of, but see, he agreed with her. And he said, he said, my only authority, I have no authority, the only authority in this church is the Word of God. And so if I'm teaching the Word of God, then you take the Word of God, and the Word of God is your authority. He says there's no other authority in, in the local church other than the Word of God. And, and it just it, it boggled my mind. I said, really? Well, what about this passage, and this passage, and this passage about my authority to build you up and not to tear you down? That's, that's Paul's authority. All right? Let no one disregard your authority. See, including John MacArthur. <laughs> or anyone else saying. But there's a spirit of this age, I think, that's spreading, and it's, it's sad to me. And I think it drives a lot of home church movements. I think it drives a lot of other things that, that believers would rather not have authority. They would rather just sit in a little fellowship circle and everybody shares their five minutes of this is what I think, this is what I think, this is what I think, and they don't want to submit to a shepherd, and they certainly don't want to admit that they're under authority. And I find that horrible. 
So the Bible then calls that sheep without a shepherd. And that's, that's vulnerable to the wolves and that's vulnerable to, the, to uh, whatever else. And so anyway, if, uh, if, uh, if there are abuses, and, and there have been and there are, will be, you know, as long as you have sinners and pulpits, authority will be abused. But the Lord will deal with that. Jesus is very good at dealing with, with false shepherds and, and trouble that has to be dealt with. So anyway, that's a side trip. Uh, but there's authority there, even if I boast somewhat further about our authority. And I like the connection about boasting and no shame. See, if you boast in yourself, you're kind of headed for shame. But if you boast in the Lord, there's no shame in that. Uh, to me, that's beautiful. Okay? So that's Second Corinthians 10.8. We also have, obviously, our passage tonight, Philippians 1.20. He's confident he's going to be saved. And what is he going to be saved from? Being put to shame. He is not going to be put to shame in anything. He's going to be saved from that. 1 Peter 4.16. Those of you in your 1 Peter studies. Yeah, you have to get out of chapter 1 first and then you can get to (laughs) chapter 2 and chapter 3 and then chapter (laughs) 4. By the way, I pray for Lewis this weekend. He's going to Spokane. and uh, So pray for Lewis and then. Chapter 1, that's fine. They haven't heard it yet. Anyway, pray for Spokane Bible Church and uh, the ministry there. 1 Peter 4.16. Now, this is good too. You know, 1 Peter is the book of suffering and you have all these chapters talking about suffering and why do we suffer and what does suffering produce and how good is it when we suffer and don't be surprised when it happens and even rejoice in it because the more you share in the sufferings, the more you're sharing in the glory. And so you're, you know, how, how Christ-like do you want to be? Okay? Well, people say, well, hallelujah, praise God, brother, and I want to be like Jesus, you know. But they're not thinking about the cross, and they're not thinking about the thorn of crown, the crown of thorns or the beating or the, you know, do you want to be Christ-like or not? Okay? Anyway, um, so verse 13 says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. And I think a lot of believers will have a diminished exaltation because they ran away from uh, as much suffering as they possibly could. And so they've got diminished glory and diminished exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There's another reference to the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. All right? If you're suffering for those reasons, then you reap what you sow, okay? And uh, just because you're saved doesn't mean, you know, you get a get out of jail free card. You're a murderer. You're going to prison. You'll probably face the death penalty and so forth. Or a thief or an evildoer. If you're suffering for all those reasons, then. Don't, uh, don't try to act like you're a martyr or some kind of a job or some kind of a poor victim. Okay? But, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, all right, now we're talking. Because you've done nothing wrong, you're not in sin, you're not hurting you know, other people, you're just naming the name of Christ. And all of a sudden, now you're subject to lawsuit after lawsuit and protest and marches and, and all the evil things that are happening getting thrown out of coffee shops. (laughs) All right. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. There's no shame in that. Don't assign a shame that God has not assigned. Does that make sense? So don't be put to shame. You're suffering as a Christian. Name the name of Christ and count it as an honor. Say, wow, thank you. You You mean it as an insult? I'll take that. You know the name Christian itself was originally an insult? They were first called Christians at Antioch. You read about that? And, the, and it was originally an insult. It was just a little diminutive. It's like when Bob becomes Bobby, you know? At some point you grow up and say, I, I'm kind of done being Bobby. You know, that's just a, it's a diminutive. It's kind of a, an insult if you're too old for that, if you're growing up and whatever. And so that term Christian is just a diminutive of, of Christ, of Christos. And, and the, the mockers, probably Jewish, probably... Um, you know, they were they were mocking Christians for being oh, you're just little Jesus people, you're just little Christs. 
And you know what? They, they loved it. <laughs> yeah, they loved it. And we've been called Christians ever since. Okay, So don't be ashamed. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in this name. Finally then, 1 John 2.28. 1 John 2.28. Here's a good rapture passage. Little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence. And much of our passage in Philippians centers on confidence or boldness. Okay, And Paul's going to have a boldness that he's thankful for that's saving him from being ashamed. But here in a rapture context, little children abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Understand that, what that verse is saying. There will be believers caught up in the rapture that won't enjoy the experience. All right? That twinkling of an eye will be an unpleasant twinkling. Okay? You know what I'm saying? Now, they'll get over it because we'll be transformed and we'll be snatched up and sin will be away. And then, But for that first moment, that initial response, when the Lord Himself descends with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, that first response for believers who, again, look at this verse, they're not abiding in Him. They're not living in the Word of God. They're not disciples. They're not like-minded with Christ. They're not occupied with Christ. Who knows what they're doing? Their lifestyle may be a worldly lifestyle. Who knows? Okay, Whatever they're doing, whatever sin they're doing, doesn't really matter. They're not abiding in Christ. And so as such, when the trumpet sounds, when we're caught up, at His appearing, there will be a, a shame. There will be that moment of, oh, man. I just got caught, um, whatever, out of fellowship. I just got caught carnal. I just caught doing this or doing whatever. I mean, you fill in your own top ten favorite sins, whatever you have. Just understand if you're not abiding in Christ, you're not filled with the Spirit, you're not walking in the light. I would love to be in the pulpit. I would love for us to be right here, right now. Wouldn't that be great? And uh, how fun would that be? All right. So we don't want to shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. And this is why we teach the the dual nature of what we have. Just because we're born again and we receive that new nature, okay? And isn't that great? You know, you've got, we we talk about, um, you know, we don't discriminate against people for things they can't control or how they were born or whatever, what race they are, what sex they are, or think they are, or what it, uh, the, the, uh, we don't discriminate on those things because what you are is what you are and you didn't choose it, okay, as far as how you were born. Well, we get a new nature when we're born again. And so we're born from above, we're born from the Father, we have a new nature. But see, here's the thing, that did not eradicate the old nature. We, we maintain both while we're still on this earth. That's why we're told to cast off the old and put on the new. And, and that's, that's a battle, sometimes every day. And um, there's days that we prefer to go back to that old thing and, and it's comfortable and it smells nasty, but we like the smell. We're used to it. And, and so we go back to that old, nasty coat, shirt, man, whatever. We put it back on again. And we're told not to. And so uh, if you're not abiding in Christ, then you're not practicing righteousness. You're not you're not operating in that birth. When it says born of Him, and that's why elsewhere in 1 John it says, no one who is born of God sins. And that trips some people up. They don't like that verse. They, don't, they fail to rec- recognize that it's true. When you sin, that's not coming from your new birth. That's coming from that old birth, right? Alright, well there's that. Um, we'll come back on Sunday and we'll deal with the earnest expectation and the hope uh, we'll talk about the boldness. Oh, there's some fun things to do there with the boldness. A lot, though, we've got to do with uh, expectation and hope. But anyway, this is what the Lord has for us, and I hope we, uh, we can understand it, hope we can live it. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I thank You for tonight. I thank You for Your faithfulness. Father, I thank You for the Word of God. And It's hard to imagine, Father, this, uh, this was written almost 2,000 years ago, and yet it's it's alive and powerful, it's vivid, it's, it's for us today. And um, 
I encounter these these skeptics and mockers. They they don't they hate you. They deny that you exist, but they hate you anyway. And then and then they they just so despise your word. They say it's it's old fashioned and it's out of date and it's it's just primitive and myth- mythological. But Father, uh, we know better, and we we love your word. You have exalted your word. You've magnified your word in accordance with your very name. And so we we also magnify it and we we uh, worship it. We love it. We study to show ourselves approved, and we understand the authority that your word has over us, Father. And so we want to learn these things so we can live them. We are workmen needing not to be ashamed. And I thank you, and I thank you so much, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.